Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. If Congress ever passes the 2024 Defense Authorization Bill, keep your eye on Section 804. It's now in the Senate version, and it's aimed at granting the Defense Department the rights to increasing amounts of contractors' data, more than it appears DOD needs for maintenance and operation of what it buys. Section 804 seems innocuous at first glance. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got more from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Zach Prince. Zach, tell us more about Section 804, what's in it, and why it should be of concern to contractors. Sure, Tom. So Section 804, it's only in the Senate version of the NDAA for now, though it could always appear in the House bill, assuming there is actually ultimately a House bill and a continuing resolution, and the government's funded and continues. But if that all happens, the Section 804 is proposing a pilot program for use of innovative intellectual property strategies intended to acquire the necessary technical data rights required for operations and maintenance. It sounds innocuous. It might be innocuous in practice, but what raises concerns is that DOD already obtains data necessary for operations and maintenance. It's called OMIT data, operations, maintenance, installation, and training. The government gets unlimited rights in OMIT data. What they don't get right now under the current statute is detailed manufacturing and process data, which is essentially the secret sauce that contractors have that makes their IP valuable. That's the technical data that describes steps, sequences, conditions for manufacturing. And it's not just in the context of actual manufacturing. They use the same terms roughly in the context of software too. So it's what you need in order to take what you're running and reproduce it. You know, something that contractors have spent a lot of money on getting to that stage. Yes. Well, there's two issues that have come up recently. One in recent years, I should say. One is too often the maintenance contracts for complicated and expensive platforms remain with contractors. And DOD would like to say, well, I don't want to fly a Lockheed technician 10,000 miles to install the XYZ actuator somewhere. And the other issue is they want to get into 3D printing and onboard types of manufacturing for replacement parts. So it could be a gambit to give them that capability. It could be. And if that's what they are looking for, they should be paying for it, right? Because the contractors spend a lot of money developing this technology and the know-how that is their competitive edge. So I think contractors have two concerns. One is making sure that they can recoup the costs that they sink into investment, and that's how you continue to foster innovation. And two is to make sure that their competitors don't get what they've just spent a lot of time and money investing into without having to put in anything on the front end. Well, do we know from those that put that provision in there what their intention is, what the senators were listening to? I suspect that this is all part of uh, the complaints you hear from some of the DOD components about the need to uh, get replacement parts, particularly for platforms that are around for a long time, and pretty much every major airframe is, at costs that DOD considers reasonable. But that's the thing, is DOD's analysis of reasonableness is extremely myopic. Right? They're looking at your costs, allowable costs, right now. They're not looking at the capex that you're making in order to continue producing a part. They're not looking really at all the costs that went in on the front end, the failed parts, the loans that you've needed to take out. And since a lot of that is unallowable 
and they're getting this distorted picture of what your profits are that a commercial company, a real commercial company like an Apple would never abide by. The price is the price. The market sets the price. And it does that based on, I think, reasonable metrics. DOD's metrics are not quite the same. In other words, if you are making the analogy with Apple, the first iPhone cost a billion dollars for Apple to develop. Something like that. I don't know what it cost back in 2007, but it was years in development, thousands of people working on it, all of this manufacturing setup, blah, blah, blah. So the first one probably cost them a billion. They're selling it for, you know, 400 at the time or something. So you got to sell a lot of them. So maybe DOD is paying not a volume price, but maybe they have a, in some cases, they're paying the development cost to some degree in that price. And then it goes down as more copies are made. And what they would like to do maybe is accelerate the uh, learning curve as expressed in pricing, sounds like. Yeah, that's that's about right. And, you know, they don't really recognize that they're an inconsistent customer. Right? A company, when they're selling a spare part, you know, you've got the OEM that is pricing a certain way, assuming certain sales going down the road. But you have no idea how many times DOD is going to replace this flange on this piece of this uh, you know, platform, you're making certain assumptions and then DOD wants to come back and say, hey, restart this manufacturing line. I know you've sold four of these in the last 10 years. We need another two. Oh, and why are you charging us more? Right. We're speaking with procurement attorney Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. That issue of the irregularity of demand has large and small implications, including the maintenance of the existence of the defense industrial base itself. And so this would seem to mitigate against suppliers staying around if the DOD has the property data that they need to go somewhere else or make it themselves, which brings up another point. Sometimes you're talking about a bolt. Well, you can make a bolt, you know, on a ship with the right machine. But a lot of these high-end parts of high-end systems, it doesn't have to be a platform. It could be a gyroscopic box or something are made of exotic materials, very specialized materials where you look like you could fabricate it from the exterior. It would be the same shape and fit, but it wouldn't operate or stand up properly because it's not made of the exact alloy. And so this is the type of information DOD would get. What is the alloy and how is it made? Yeah, that's right. And it's always an interesting question of whether anybody can really do anything with that technical data, right? If you've got a super complicated process and know-how you've developed over decades and you've got the equipment to manufacture it, is somebody really going to take that data and be able to stand up an operation to compete with you, you know, within a reasonable time frame? Maybe, maybe not, but companies don't want to take the risk. I guess the other danger here is, yes, another company would probably not do that, would not be incentivized to do that, but China might be. No, that's, that's right. And, you know, that's a much broader question about who's going to end up with access to your data and security of different systems and export controls. And those are all real concerns. But getting back to 804, as it's in the Senate NDAA draft at this point, it's only a limited program, an experiment or a a pilot program. And how would it actually work? Do we know? It is way too vaguely stated at this point. I sort of suspect that this is not going to make it into a final bill. Uh, We'll see what a final bill actually looks like if hopefully there is one and soon. This comes, similar types of proposals come about in the NDAA almost every year. Some dramatic shifts being proposed in the way that DOD buys IP. 
it doesn't usually get much traction, but it keeps being reasserted because there are stakeholders at DOD that care quite a lot about this. And I think their concerns are real, right? They do want to make sure they can have the operations and maintenance that they need at prices that they need, and they don't like being blackmailed by OEMs. I sometimes fear that they perceive business negotiations that are totally standard commercial practices as blackmail when they're really nothing of the sort. And by the way, when it comes to these detailed specifications and so forth, what do the regulations as they stand now say? So the regulations are a little vague, and, and that is an issue that comes up time and time again in these negotiations. They, the DOD acquires omit data with unlimited rights, assuming that it's actually a contract deliverable. But where the line lies between information necessary for operations, maintenance, installation, training, and where it then becomes a detailed process and man manufacturing process data is challenging to assess. There is a Section 813 panel that was impaneled by Congress a couple years ago that looked at this issue, they didn't recommend any statutory changes. They recommended instead that DOD put out some really good guidance, an IP acquisition guidebook. GAO looked at this and they roughly said the same thing. They were a little bit cagier about whether they thought a statutory change was needed. But the IP guidebook is going to be really critical. And that is supposedly around the corner. So everybody's paying attention to see what that's going to look like. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone, speaking with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences, 
And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. 
and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know in my mind didn't know what they were talking about and so um, in reflection on that I realize and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions I realize that was a mistake that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year 
and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.